All right, hello everyone, Sakuya here. I'm just going to say this right now. Before this whole podcast begins, this is a disclaimer. I know that I say it a couple times in here, but I had to record this afterwards in order to put this in. This podcast is dark. It is graphic. There is murder. There is descriptions of sexual violence of an extreme degree. There are many, many horrible things in here. If any of this makes you uncomfortable, I am telling you this right now. Do not listen to this episode. Listen to a different one. But if you do want to learn about a horrifying thing that occurred in the Soviet Union over the course of the 70s and 80s, please do continue to listen. But I am providing you this warning right now. It will be dark. Well, hello everyone. Stakuya here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Now, today's episode is... um. I mean, if you listen to our previous episode that we're putting out, I mean, okay, it's at the time of recording this, the previous episode is going out first on YouTube because we got the video ready before the audio goes out on Spotify slash everything else as a kind of bonus episode that we were releasing for Halloween. Now, that one is cutesy. I say the cutesy. Really horrible things happened in it when you look at the actual story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, but we did that whole thing because the couple's costume idea that we had is Mark Antony and Cleopatra with each other. This one, on the other hand, there's there's nothing cutesy about this. Gabby, um, I did you look over any of the notes from anything here I that was sent seen, over? I haven't seen any of the notes. I actually have no idea what's it what what it's on. Okay, okay. So I'm I'm just here. So this even going through it was more of a shock for me because this episode is actually brought to you by our producer slash editor for the podcast james who did all the research going into this and this my friends is a true horrifying halloween thing okay so what's it on just a general rundown murder cannibalism a lot of sexual violence I'm going to tell you all right now, if this is something that potentially is going to bother you, please go listen to something else. This is not going to be able to go up on YouTube because of the subject matter. Forget monetization. I'm not even sure if it would be able to be going up on YouTube in the first place. Because what we're talking about is true terror and evil. And the name, the focus of this podcast is a person who would abuse, torture, and murder people all across the former USSR, what today is a collection of states that include like Russia, Kazakhstan, uh, like Ukraine, all these states that were part of the USSR, he just went on a massive killing and torture spree through the 70s and the 80s. Today, we are going to be reviewing the life and the crimes of a man known as the Rostov Ripper, the Mad Beast, Killer X, the forced strip killer, and the butcher of Rostov, the man by the name of Andre Chikatilo. Okay, my question here is, is this a serial killer? Yeah. We're doing our first true crime history episode. We are, but all those true crime, when they're talking the stories and the mystery and everything surrounding it, those are usually focused on the crime. This is the story of this person and the circumstances and the history. I... I want to do more things like this for terrible crimes and other stuff, but specifically from a more historical perspective, like going back where we're not just looking at something that occurred in the 1980s. No, I want to go back 
many decades. I want to go back centuries and just look at crazy crimes and all different kinds of things that have occurred. So yes, welcome everyone to the History of Everything podcast, where it is now a um, true crime show, I guess. We're, we're just feeding into the, what, what would be the proper term here? The hype? The hype we're feeding into the... the I have no idea. The thing that everyone latched on, the trend. That's what I'm trying to think of. We're, we're, forgot we, I forgot the word trend. Yes, I did, which sounds so weird as a social media person. But we are jumping into the trend of people doing true crime podcasts. But yeah, this is, this is the story of Andre Ramonovich Chikatilo. He was born on October 16th, 1936, in this tiny village called, and pardon me, from everything that you hear in this episode because it's going to be a lot of Russian slash Ukrainian pronunciation for different things. It's going to be wrong. It's going to be wrong okay. coming out of you my mouth. You make your attempt and then I'll make my attempt and maybe one of us would be kind of close. Well, this one is not bad. Yablochonye. Okay, yeah. Yablochonoy is what I would say. Chonoy? Because I don't know if they have the ye. Chonoy? 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 Yablochinoy. I like Yablochinoy more. Like that sounds that sounds a a bit more natural and it's easier for me to say in the first. You know, it's it's going to be easier. Yablochinoy. So, he was born in this tiny little village of Yablochinoy, which is located in rural Ukraine. Now, I, I need you to understand just how terrible the world that he was born into was because in this time and place, it was one of the worst points in history to be Ukrainian. You can say what you want about the current ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine. At this point, we are talking about something that is like this. This is the great thing that irrevocably destroyed relations between Ukraine and the rest of, say, Russia. So Joseph Stalin, the authoritarian ruler of the USSR, he had instituted collectivization of agriculture, and this hit Ukraine really hard, which is kind of, I'm not going to use the term funny, it was ironic, because the name for Ukraine, the nickname of it, was the breadbasket of Europe. This place, historically, has been one of the largest producers of wheat, barley, rice, uh, not rice, but oats, sunflower, rye, that's what I mean, beets, and all their kinds of grain crops. To put this in perspective, Ukraine produced over a quarter of all agricultural output over the lifespan of the Soviet Union. This one place was responsible for the overwhelming majority of its agricultural production. And when these collectivization policies were put into place, what that did was essentially take all of the crops that were produced in Ukraine and shipped them out to other Soviet Republic states, leaving Ukraine with very little food left. The, this whole period, starting around 1932, is known as the Holodomor, in which between 3 and 6 million Ukrainians starved to death, one of the worst famines in history. Now, these numbers are very heavily disputed, as well as whether the Holodomor would actually be considered a genuine genocide or not, rather than just a failed policy. Okay, my question is how... How are they three million? How is there a three million variation? Like doubt. Because the records are not very well kept. Mass graves, secret deaths, people just disappearing. You don't know whether they died or just were relocated as enemies of the state to another part of the Soviet Union. 
That's horrifying. Yeah, welcome to life under communist dictatorship. That's also what what are the criteria for a genocide? Because I always see this. It's highly disputed or highly contentious whether or not something was a genocide, and then they say something along the lines of anyone anywhere between one million and twenty million people died, and then they're like, But we're not sure. Yep, because it's a targeted it's a targeted eradication of a specific people. Now, whether this is based off religion, whether this is based off race, whether this is based off some kind of specific feature or not, it is a targeted extermination of those people. But it doesn't mean necessarily killing them outright. Extermination means reducing their ability to reproduce, as an example. Like, you have people who'd be chemically castrated so that they would not be able to have children. And in doing so for an entire population, that is genocide. You are wiping out their people so that they will not be able to procreate anymore and produce. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So I guess a lot of people just don't agree. Yeah, because there's also a difference between is it genocide or just terrible crimes against humanity? Because every genocide is a crime against humanity. Not every crime against humanity is a genocide. Just because a whole bunch of people died from a specific thing does not mean that they were targeted for extermination. Just they were an unfortunate consequence of whatever happened. Okay, right back to that genocide thing. Um, The Irish potato famine, they say, could be a genocide. Yeah. But that was also targeted towards a group of people. Yes, but it was it was not something that was directly caused by anything besides a natural thing with the fungus that created the potato famine in the first place. It got worse because there were many parts of the British government that just didn't bother helping Ireland because they wanted it to use it as a kind of learning experience to let the Irish remove themselves from their dependency upon the potato and develop more industrial and developed aspects of an economy. So that's where people argue that it's like because they were not helped, because these things were specifically done, and the entire time food from Ireland was still being exported to other parts of England. Like think of it, think of it like what was going on here with Ukraine, where this all this food, they were still producing it, but the food was getting seized by the government and was then being shipped to other parts of the country. In this case, like or in the case of like the the Irish, you have food that is being exported still by these large landowners who own these tracts of land, which in turn drives up more price of food from anything produced locally because the Irish would have subsisted on potatoes normally. Meanwhile, they would export the meat, they would export the grain, they would export all the other things that they were producing, but and they would just rely on the potato. But with the, with no potato, they had to export the other crops for money and then had no food left. Okay, that makes yeah. It gets it, really complex. It I, is really complex. I think it's more of a philosophy. It's 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 all of it. But okay, it continue. Is all, and again, as it's very contentious. But this was bad, right? And so, as a child, one of the future leaders of the Soviet Union, a man by the name of Mikhail Gorbachev, he was born into a mixed Russian-Ukrainian family that also experienced the famine in Stravpol, Russia. And he recalled in one of his memoirs about it that in that terrible year, referring to 1933, nearly half of the population of his native village, Privlonoye, starved to death, including two sisters and one brother of his father. The situation, over time, would just continue to deteriorate due to a series of different factors, and eventually, famine and disease would spread everywhere. 
and from there, evidence of widespread cannibalism would be well documented over the course of the Holodomor. Now, there's a quote from this that really talks about the horrors of it. So, this this is an apt description of what people at the time were experiencing. The gist of it is that survival was a moral as well as a physical struggle. A woman doctor wrote to a friend in June of 1933 saying that she had not yet become a cannibal, but was not sure that she would not be one by the time the letter reached the recipient. The good people died first. Those who refused to steal or prostitute themselves died. Those who gave food to others died. Those who refused to eat corpses died. Those who refused to kill their fellow men died. Parents who resisted cannibalism died before their children did. The Soviet regime actually had to put out a whole bunch of printed posters declaring, to eat your own children is barbarian, or a barbarian act. Like, no shit Sherlock, of course it is. How were they convicting people of cannibalism? There would be signs everywhere. Why would they... You'd find human bones in trash cans and all different kinds of things. So, people were eating their own kids. Yes. I mean... One of the things that would happen is you have children that are not able to be taken care of. There were cases, documented cases, of parents who, because they could not afford to feed their children, they would kill their children so that they had less mouths to feed and then eat them because that was all the food that they were able to get. I can see you staring at me, just blinking there. I'm also starting to understand exactly what this person would become. Yeah. This is all this. We're not even talking about Andre yet. This is the background in which he grew up that would make the killer that he would become a reality. Like you need to understand anyone. This is this. These times were incredibly brutal. If you grew up in this, I don't think you're going to have that moral compass. That's like, maybe I shouldn't go around killing people. So, I mean, it honestly makes a little, it makes a lot of sense. And it's really unfortunate. Oh, yeah. Because it would take a lot to eat your own child. So if parents did that, that's. Oh, yeah. I mean, we have to understand these times were incredibly brutal. And this does not excuse Chikatilo from any of the crimes that he did. It doesn't. But it does at least provide some kind of backdrop that will inform us and let us know the kind of mindset that he, as well as many other people during this time, also shared. Survival was first and foremost. It was every man for himself. Death was just a part of life, one that would become all too normal for young Andre as he grew up to become a sadistic predator. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, to talk about Andre, 
it is believed that he was born suffering from something called hydrocephalus, also known as water of the brain or on the brain. And what this would cause is him to have multiple genital urinary tract issues, such as bedwetting all throughout his childhood, as well as impotence once he actually hit puberty. Now, the impotence would be a lifelong problem for him. It just was something that was a massive source of frustration, and he hated this about himself. It was like one of his core things that just infuriated him, that he hated about himself. He and his mother actually shared a bed when he was a child as they were so poor that that's all they could do. And every time he would wet the bed, she would verbally and physically abuse and beat him as a punishment. His mother would recount the story of his older brother who allegedly kidnapped and was eaten by someone in their village. There's really no way to verify that claim, but the fact that that is even something that could have occurred is... It just allows us to see how horrible things really were in that area. He was bullied at school for the fact that his father had been captured by the Germans during World War II, and he was really shy throughout all of his childhood and well into his teens. During the war, Chikatilo had seen many of the effects of the Blitzkrieg, which frightened but also excited him with the violence. And on one occasion, his mother and him were forced to watch as their little house, their hut that they had, burned to the ground after being bombed. When he was 15 years old, Chikatilo had only had one sexual experience back in his adolescence when he attacked an 11-year-old sister of one of his friends. He dragged her to the ground, and while she struggled, he not only was able to get an erection, but he also completed and had a climax while she tried to fight him off. So from this, he discovered that it was fear and violence it would actually excite him and get him aroused more than the sexual act itself. This would become much, much worse. In 1953, Chikatilo finished school and he applied for a scholarship at Moscow State University. Ironically enough, enough, he was there to study law. You know, this guy who as a teenager was committing violent acts and rape wanted to go on to do things with law. Even when he passed the entrance exam, his grades were just not good enough to actually get accepted. And so between 1957 and 1960, he went on to perform his compulsory military service. After his time in the military, he would move to Russia in search of work. And he ended up becoming a telephone engineer in the small town of Rodonovo Nestovetsky. And there he saved up to move his parents and his sister out of their poor area to come and live with him. Eventually, his sister would introduce him to a friend of hers named Feina, and they actually developed a relationship and married in 1963. Though, oddly enough, for her, her new husband didn't really seem to be interested in sex at all. And it was there that Feina would go on to learn about her husband's impotence as well as his inability to consummate their marriage. Now, what you have to understand here is that Feina did not really care that she was going to be in a loveless marriage. She just wanted a marriage. She wanted stability. She wanted to have children. It didn't really matter who with. Imagine this as a darker version of that person who is more in love with the idea of being married than actually being in love with someone. So they force someone to propose to them or whatever. That is the thing that I have seen multiple times, but this is something much, much darker and worse. 
In her case, she didn't care that his work was going to mean that he was going to be away for long periods of time. She did not care that he wasn't able to consummate their marriage. So what she had him do to make sure that she could get some children is that he would have to use his hand to manually complete himself to climax, and then he would have to manually insert the seed in her in order to inseminate her. It's just artificial insemination before it became yeah, a thing. Literally. Okay. That's actually innovative. Because he wasn't able to get off to her on his own. It had to be something that he would do himself. I can only imagine what sick, twisted fantasies and things that he was thinking about when he did, so that he could then do it into his hand and shove it inside her. Why do you have to say it like that? Because this is already a dark and terrible thing. I can't really imagine what else it is that I would say for it. Again, for I warned you from the beginning, anyone who is listening to this point, this is not the worst of it. It will get much worse. Also, I think we should re like we should record just a disclaimer at the beginning, like a very solid disclaimer. Yeah, before any of this so starts. At the agreed. end, we'll just do that. Agreed. We'll go ahead and do that. So this actually worked, the whole insemination thing, and the couple eventually would go on to have two children. They would have a girl that was named Ludmilla, and she was born in 1965, and a boy named Yuri, who was born in 1969. Now, not long after his marriage, Chikatilo successfully enrolled in a correspondence course with the Rostov Liberal Arts University, and in 1971, he got degrees in Russian literature, engineering, and Marxism-Leninism. And with his newfound skills, Chikatilo then became a teacher at Vocational School Number 32 in Novoshatsk. Now, there, he taught Russian language and literature, but almost from the beginning, this career was an utter disaster for him. His complete shyness made it so that it was really impossible for him to teach or rather control any of his students. He was constantly being humiliated and ridiculed by them, but not only by his students, but also other staff members who just looked at him as being odd. So you may wonder then, well, why did he stay as a teacher? Why did he do this? Well, it's because he found that as a teacher, this would allow him to be around young children who would sexually arouse him. Eventually, their simple presence wasn't enough and he was caught on more than one attempt to try to... Or not, not, God, I'm messing this up. It's like, th this is really awful, so I'm having a hard time like trying to describe it to you all. But he was caught on more than one occasion trying to molest children, boys or girls, it didn't matter. He was trying to do both. And it's really crazy to think about that after the first incident, he wasn't just fired and removed and this whole thing reported to the police or any of that. But you know why that, that never happened, Gabby? I'm assuming they didn't have a really well-put justice system? That, yes, agreed. It was because of the justice system, and it was also because, in their case, personally, under this communist system, one person looks bad, it potentially would look bad on the rest of them from getting a job in the first place. So everything had to be just swept under the rug because the moment that you get the Soviet authorities, the police, and the potential investigators involved, now you're not just talking about one person that may be subject to an investigation. The entire school is, and all kinds of things could come out. So in order to protect their own careers and stability, they just swept this under the rug despite all the awful things that he was doing. So they let him 
continue on because they could lose their own jobs. Yeah. If you could not tell by now, the USSR was extremely corrupt and ineffective. And this just allowed Chikatilo to escape unscathed and continue to be around children because he left that one school and just kept on going to additional schools. He just kept on going from school to school to school. At this point, was he still married to his wife? Yeah. Did, do you think she did, do they know if she knew? We we're going to get into all of this. We're going to get into all this. So at one of the schools, Chikatilo was put in charge of a boy's dormitory where they slept. And as usual, his charges would just openly ignore or tease him. Some months later, he was actually caught trying to fillate a boy while he was sleeping. And then he was then attacked and beaten by several of the senior students who were there. And from that moment on, Chikatilo went and carried a knife so that he would be able to defend himself while he was in the process of trying to assault someone. At no point was he ever reported to the proper authorities because perhaps, again, under the Soviet regime at the time, any indiscretion of a single teacher would reflect on the entire faculty. So, again, the charges were just swept under the rug. And at that point, Chikatilo realized, like, this is failure after failure after failure for all that he's doing. He's going to be caught no matter what it is that he does. So he's going to need to continue that pattern in a different job, in a different field. Eventually, he would be hired as a corporate supply clerk for a large company that operated across the USSR. And as it turns out for him, this new job would be perfect because it would require him to travel, thus allowing him to evade detection by authorities for many years. So he essentially just planned his entire life around committing crimes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I fully understand the background that would get him to this point. But still, it's just there were many other people, right? Who yep. lived through the exact same thing. And I guess they didn't go down this path. Nope. I mean, maybe not the exact same thing, because he also had, like, the water on the brain and all of those other issues. It's just, I don't know, it's just one of those things where you really have to think about exactly what went wrong in this one person's life. For them to make those specific choices, because I understand it was difficult for everybody, you know? That's, yeah. And that's, uh, I know I get what you mean. And that, right there, that is precisely why the podcasts that typically focus on true crimes and going to serial killers and all that, that's why they're popular. That's what people like. Even now... This is a really twisted and horrible thing, but I can't help but think going through this, I want to understand why. And if not just why, but how, how could someone reach this point? And that's the story. That's the kind of the purpose of it. That's why, that's why the podcast like that tend to focus so heavily on serial killers. But this guy hasn't killed anyone yet. But now it's about to happen. So after moving to the town of Shakti in September of 1978, Shakti being a small coal mining town that was near the city of Rostov, his urges were growing to such an uncontrollable degree that what began now was a string of murders. On December 22nd, the 42-year-old then lured 9-year-old Yelena Zaknova to an old house that he had recently purchased. While attempting to rape her, he was initially unsuccessful due to his impotence, and when Yelena struggled... He choked her to death, stabbed her three times in the stomach, and while taking her life, that allowed him to achieve sexual climax. He then dumped her body in a river. This was Chikatilo's first murder. 
And now he didn't realize that there was evidence that he had left behind. It was the first one. He was very inexperienced. Drops of Yelena's blood were found in the snow near the house that he owned where he had attacked her. Even more importantly, a witness had seen him talking to Yelena near the bus stop where he met her at. And it should be noted at this time that most of the murders that were committed by Chikatilo, these were near bus stops and train stations. And that allowed him to dump bodies in the woods while he was still able to escape the area quickly afterwards. Unfortunately, for any sense of justice, the Soviet police quickly placed blame on a 25-year-old man by the name of Alexander Kravtrenko, as Kravtrenko had served a jail sentence in his teens for the rape and murder of a teenage girl in the area, and was an easy mark for retribution to placate the community, rather than do any actual police work to see if it was anyone else. Kravtrenko even then gave a confession to Yelena's murder during the interrogation but he retracted his statements during the trial, claiming that his confession was obtained under extreme duress, which essentially means that they tortured it out of him. Regardless, the police wanted this problem to disappear, and so Katrenko was then sentenced to 15 years imprisonment, which was the maximum sentence at that time. Yelena's family complained that the justice that was being done didn't actually seemed like it did anything because the descriptions that witnesses were giving described the guy who took their daughter as a middle-aged man with glasses which did not describe Kavtrenko at all and due to the pressure from the family they retried Kavtrenko and eventually just executed him for the murder of Yelena Zaknova in July of 1983 so they actually managed to make them do a retrial and then the Soviet authorities were still like ah no 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 he did it. Just kill him now. Get, get it over with. We don't want any more of this crap. And that's what happened there. During his first murder, Chikatilo realized that he was only able to achieve sexual arousal and reach orgasm through stabbing, slashing, and choking women and children to death. When not committing murders, he claimed to possess an overwhelming urge to repeat and relive the experiences of this first murder that he had done. So in September of 1981, he would commit his second murder. He lured a 17-year-old boarding student by the name of Larissa Tchenko into the forest near the Don River and attempted to assault her. But unfortunately for Chikatilo, this time he was unable to achieve an erection, which just enraged him. So he beat and strangled her to death. As he has forgotten his knife that previous day, he mutilated her body with his teeth and a stick, removing a breast as well as other body parts. This would prove to be common in multiple other murders that he would go on to commit. His cannibalism and the fact that he would often remove the eyes of his victims became the calling card of Chikatilo's string of killings. This was due to the old Russian superstition that the last thing someone sees before they die will be imprinted on their eyes. Forensic investigation revealed that he would remove the eyes of many of his victims using a knife. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel! 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Chikatilo's victims were all women and children. This was due to his ability to both coerce them to follow him as well as his ability to overwhelm them physically. His adult female victims were typically prostitutes or homeless women who would go along with him in the hopes of obtaining easy money or alcohol. And typically, he would try to rape them and then, naturally, almost each time, being unable to achieve an erection, would then send him into a rage, which would then cause him to choke or stab them to death, allowing him to achieve orgasm while doing so. On December 11th, 1982, Chikatilo then murdered 10-year-old Olga Stalmolchenok after persuading her to leave the bus with him to receive imported chewing gum that he claimed to have at home. He then lured her to a cornfield on the edge of town, stabbed her over 50 times in the head and body, cut open her chest, and removed her lower bowels as well as uterus. And at this point, Chikatilo would wait six months until his next killing. And at this point his output of violence would just increase dramatically. Okay. I don't listen to serial killer podcasts. I am de- I don't know why I thought I would be able to record this. I'm deeply disturbed. I told you. Right Re- remember when I said from the beginning, when we were sitting down, I told you, Gabby, I've read through this. I'm going through all of it. I'm telling you this right now. This cannot go on YouTube. Okay. Forget demonetization. This will not be able to physically go on YouTube. Oh, I understand that part. But the thing I'm telling you is that I cannot, I don't even listen to this stuff. When I listen to true crime, I listen to like missing persons true crime. If I have to listen to true crime. So... If you guys don't hear me for the rest of the episode, it is probably because she I She is ran. sitting in a corner petrified right now. No, I might actually leave. Yeah. This is bad. I'll come back to record the trigger warning at, like, the beginning. Just a disclaimer. But also, I don't think I can listen to the entire thing because, like, it's going to make me cry. Yeah. In June of 1983, he would kill five more people between June and September. And at this point, the Soviet police could not deny that a serial killer was on the loose. A team of police investigators led by Major Mikhail Festisov was led to Rostov to find the culprit. And they primarily focused on the area around Shakti and would focus their efforts on detaining and questioning local people known for being mentally ill, homosexuals, pedophiles, or just registered sex offenders, as these typically were some of the more common sources. Many of those brought in were mentally ill and would actually confess to varying murders while under long and brutal interrogations. Three known homosexuals, as well as a sex offender, committed suicide because of the interrogations, and in the end, the murders just kept occurring, which proved that it was impossible for any of those confessions to actually be true. Now, interestingly enough, because of the efforts of police to find the killer, more than a thousand other unrelated crimes, including 95 murders, 140 aggravated assaults, and 245 rapes, were solved because they just had to dedicate that many more resources into this to figure it out. So they found other things. In October of 1983, he would then murder a 19-year-old prostitute named Vera Shevkun. Two months later, just after Christmas, Chikatilo would meet 14-year-old Sergei Markov on a train and lured him to a secluded area where he attacked him. 
Marco was later found emasculated, having received over 70 knife wounds to his neck and torso, and was then subsequently eviscerated. Chikatilo murdered two more women in Rostov's Aviators Park during January and February of 1984. Then in March of 1984, he convinced 10-year-old Dmitry Pushtnikov to go with him to see some rare stamps. The boy collected stamps and agreed, expecting that nothing was going to happen to him. Three days later, his body was found with saliva and semen samples on his clothing, as well as the killer's footprints located near his body. On May 25th, he killed Tatiana Petrosayan and her 11-year-old daughter, Svetlana, at the same time in the woods outside Shakti. This also marked the first time that Chikatilo would kill anyone that he had known prior to the time that the murders took place. At this point, Chikatilo's bloodlust became insatiable, and in the space of six weeks, he would murder three more young women between the ages of 19 and 22, as well as a 13-year-old boy. Then, in what could have been the largest stroke of luck for law enforcement that they would receive in the case, Chikatilo was fired from his job as a supply clerk for theft of property. Now, unfortunately for the police, he obtained another job as a traveling regional supply clerk for another company on August 1st of 1984. And on August 2nd, Chikatilo would end the life of 16-year-old Natalia Golovskaya in Aviators Park. And five days later, he would kill another 17-year-old girl on the banks of the Don River. On August 15th, he would commit another double murder, killing a young woman as well as a 12-year-old girl. And less than two weeks later, an 11-year-old boy was found strangled and castrated with his eyes gouged out. There's, there's a reason why at this point that Gabby is no longer in this room to be able to hear this story. Again, for anyone that is listening, please, you don't have to if you don't want to. Days later, another body would be discovered in Aviators Park, this time belonging to a young librarian named Irina Luchinskaya. By this point in mid-September of 1984, Chikatilo had already murdered a staggering 15 people. He was then spotted on September 13th trying to lure young women away from the bus station, and an undercover cop went, apprehended, detained, and arrested him. This should be it. And when he was searched, police discovered both a knife and some rope, and even though he matched the description of the man that was last seen with Dmitri in March of 1984, police had insufficient evidence to actually charge him at the time, according to official statements that were released later. Initially, the evidence seemed to indicate that he could be the killer that they sought until a blood sample that was taken from him and analyzed. His blood type was found to be type A, had they taken samples of his sperm, hair, or saliva, they would have found that his blood type was actually type AB, as the B antigens are not present in the blood in sufficient quantities to provide a positive match. So he was released on December 12, 1984, and had to keep a low profile. He would not kill again for over six months. During this time, he also moved to the town of Notrikask, which then caused the police to think that the killer had left Rostov and moved on to kill elsewhere, which, ironically enough, wasn't entirely untrue. On August 1st, 1985, after traveling to Moscow for work, he encountered an 18-year-old mentally disabled woman and would lure her off the bus with the offer of some alcohol. She was later found to be stabbed 38 times. Soon after this, he met a young homeless woman in Sharkti, and he offered her lodging in exchange for sex. 
He took her to the woods and attempted to rape her, but again, she could not achieve erection, which caused her to laugh at him. This enraged Chikapio, who immediately murdered her and left her body in a field. By this point, Chikapio became so brazen, he didn't even bother burying the bodies anymore. He would just leave them laying out in the open, in the woods, or in a field. He would also oftentimes fill his victims' mouths with dirt or sand in order to keep anyone from hearing their screams. Chikatilo spent most of 1986 traveling for work and maintained a low profile. He didn't kill for over a year. During this time, he also celebrated his 50th birthday, and in May of 1987, he just couldn't resist any longer and killed 13-year-old Oleg Moreknikov near a bus station in Revda, high up in the Ural Mountains. In July, he made a trip to Zaprovye in Ukraine and murdered Ivan Bilotovsky in the woods in an attack that was so vicious that a part of his knife blade broke off and was later found by police. In September of 87, he took a trip to Leningrad, and shortly thereafter, 16-year-old Yuri Tereshnikov's body was found in the woods outside of town. In 1988, Chikatilo would kill three more victims, murdering an unidentified woman in April, followed by the death of another boy in May, and on July 14th, he would kill 15-year-old Yevgeny Murtov, and his autopsy showed that he had been emasculated and suffered at least 30 knife wounds. Now, not killing again until February 28th of 1989, Chikatilo then lured 16-year-old Tatiana Rizova in his own daughter's vacant apartment. He then dismembered her body using a kitchen knife and hid the remains in a sewer. On his way to his father's birthday party, Chikatilo then noticed 19-year-old Yelena Yevarga at a bus stop, offering to walk her home safely he took her out to the woods and stabbed her repeatedly. He then cut out her uterus, sliced off part of her face, and then wrapped the remains in her clothing and left to resume heading to the party. On January 14th, 1990, outside of a movie theater in Shakti, Chikatilo enticed 11-year-old Andrei Kravchenko to come and watch illegally imported Western films with him at his home. Instead, he was led to a remote section of the forest nearby stabbed numerous times, and then, once again, emasculated. Seven weeks later, on March 7th, 10-year-old Yaroslav Markov was taken to the Rostov Botanical Gardens and later found eviscerated. By August of 1990, Chikatilo would murder three more victims, a 31-year-old Lubyov Zuveya, 13-year-old Viktor Petrov, and 11-year-old Ivan Fomin. By this point, the police had tried so many approaches that simply didn't work. The only real successful thing they had tried was hiring a criminal profiler who created an extremely accurate profile of Chikatilo. And at this point, with the Soviet Union in the process of collapsing, more news was sent out to the public, and the fear of this killer caused an unprecedented amount of fear and pressure on local officials. They had to do something. So they began a new tactic to try and ensnare him. They put loads of uniformed police on the main railways and bus lines along the paths of the bodies that were left behind. But they left three stops guarded only by undercover detectives that were hoping to force the killer to have to murder in that area or not murder at all. Because it was very obvious that everywhere else there was a very heavy police presence. This they hoped to at least create some kind of trap for him. They began this operation in October of 1990. 
and on October 30th, the body of 16-year-old Vadim Gromov was found near one of these three stops. He had been strangled, stabbed 27 times, and the tip of his tongue severed, was stabbed in the left eye, and then finally castrated. Less than 10 days later, Viktor Tishtenko was also stabbed over 40 times, and his body was found in the forest near one of the other lightly guarded stops. They were honing in on the killer, and they were getting close to capturing him. On November 6, 1990, Chikatiom killed and murdered 22-year-old Svetlana Krocik on the woods near Dolichonsk Station. On his way back to the railway platform, an undercover officer noticed Chikatiyo stopping at a well to wash his hands and face. The officer also noted when Chikatiyo got closer that his coat and grass and soil stains on him, like they, they were there on his clothing below the elbows, and he had a red smear on his cheek that looked to be a pretty severe wound on one of his fingers. On the 13th of November, the police found Korotsik's body and compared the time of death to the men stopped and checked the day before the murder. Chikatiyo was then placed under surveillance on November 14th. Over the next week, police witnessed Chikatiyo on buses and trains trying to start conversations with young women and children. If they broke off conversation, he would simply wait a few minutes and then try the strategy on the next person. On November 20th, 1990, upon exiting a cafe, Chikatiyo was finally arrested by four undercover police officers. And while in detention, the police tried to place an undercover officer in Chikatiyo's cell, acting as just another prisoner with the intent of trying to get him to confess. When that didn't work, they called in Dr. Bukunovsky, the profiler who had studied and described the killer. When sat down with Chikatiyo, Dr. Bukunovsky then began reading the 65-page profile. Two hours later, Chikatiyo broke down in tears at the accuracy of the profile and confessed to everything. Amazingly enough, after confessing, Chikatiyo became extremely cooperative with the police. He gave a full description of all of the murders and would draw rough sketches of the crime scenes, including positions of the bodies, as well as details about the murders that had not been released to the public. He also told police about his usual modus operandi, in which he would try to get the victim's hand behind their back with a rope, inflicting dozens of knife wounds followed by evisceration or emasculation while writhing on top of the victims until he achieved orgasm. He also mentioned having a special knack for avoiding the larger arterial spurts of blood from his victims as he would inflict these wounds and would regularly sit or squat beside the victim until their hearts had stopped beating, adding that the victim's cries and the blood and the agony gave him a sense of relaxation and pleasure. Chikatiyo also often would taste the blood of his victims, claiming that he did so and would feel chills and would shake all over. He confessed to using his teeth to tear at victims' genitalia, their lips, their nipples, their tongues. Sometimes he would cut or bite off the tongue as the victim was being eviscerated, and then as they were dying, would run around the body holding the tongue in the air and dancing. Over the next days, Chikatiyo would admit to over 50 murders. He was brought to trial on April 14, 1992, and charged with 53 counts of murder, as well as five charges of sexual assault against minors. One day, as court announced recess, the brother of Ludmila Alavskaya, a 17-year-old girl that was killed by Chikatiyo in August of 1984, threw a heavy chunk of metal at Chikatiyo, hitting him in the chest. When security tried to arrest the young man, the other victim's relatives shielded him. 
Chikatilo was found guilty of 52 murders out of the 53 that he was charged with and was sentenced to death for each offense. On the 15th of October, the judge formally sentenced Chikatilo to death plus 86 years for the 52 murders and five counts of sexual assault that he'd been found guilty with. When this happened, when he was formally charged, Chikatilo kicked his bench across the cage that he had been in and began shouting abuse. However, when he was then given an opportunity to make a speech in response to the verdict, he just remained silent, and this was until the passing of his final sentence. The judge would then go on to make the following remark. Taking into consideration the horrible misdeeds of which he is guilty, this court has no alternative but to impose the only sentence that it deserves. I therefore sentence him to death. On February 14th, 1994, Chikatilo was led from his cell to a soundproof room in Novtrakpask prison and was executed with a single gunshot behind the right ear. He then was buried in an unmarked grave in the prison cemetery. So ends the story of Andre Chikatilo, one of the worst bastards to ever exist. Well, everyone, that is the end of that. I, um, I'm now the only one left in this room. Gabby had to leave because this was really quite horrifying. I, I know that this was much darker, much more graphic, much more terrible than many of the things that we've covered. It's history. It's never a clean subject. And I always specify that for people that we are not going to just skip past the things that are not clean. That's that's just how things go. But this was very different as this was a true horror story that I figured would be perfect for Halloween. It really is a terrible tale of depravity and murder and mayhem that was created in a time of horror and only became more terrifying as time went on. I hope that you all not enjoyed the episode, but I hope that you were able to learn something from it. In the end, there's, I don't know how many much more of these that I will do, but I hope that you guys have a good rest of your day. I hope you enjoy Halloween and make sure to always be safe and look out for strangers. In the end, this is pretty much becoming something along the lines of a public safety announcement. Be careful. There's always really weird, sick people on this earth. Goodbye, guys. <laughs>